starting in the beginning of the chapter, we're looking at verses 1 to 10 today. While, while you're finding your place there, um, I have something on the screen. What I want to bring to your attention is that um, there are some things that when we are interpreting Scripture or interpreting anything, whether it's something you're reading or something that you're hearing spoken, um, there are things that are very important to in order to in- interpret it correctly. So here's an example of um, a grammatical thing. If you have this sentence... Sorry, there... No, go up. Uh, sorry, go back some... There we go. There we go. If you have this sentence... Let's eat, Grandpa. That sounds like, let's go get something to eat, Grandpa. But if you remove that comma, it says, let's eat, Grandpa, like you're going to eat him. So commas are pretty important. And um, uh, you can ask my wife about how important commas are. Um, She (laughs) made, if I have the story correctly, made um, some people who were drafting a bill completely start over and write the whole thing over because there was a comma out of place. And it made a big difference in how the law was going to be interpreted. Is that right? Okay. So commas. Grammar is very important when you're interpreting anything. Um, We've talked before. You can hold on before you move to the next one. We've talked before about how there are certain cults that uh, um, use the same words that we use, words from Scripture, but they redefine them to mean something different than what the Bible uh, defines them to mean. So biblical definitions of words are very important when you're interpreting. Um, and then one more example of how context is important. If you go to the next one, this is something that was heard in our family one time. I can only handle so many things in the day and I don't have time for paper robes. Now, I didn't know the context to that. So I heard that and that didn't seem to make much sense to me. But once I heard the context, then the whole thing made sense. So context is very important when you are interpreting anything. So grammar, uh, definitions, and context are all important to understand what somebody's saying, whether they're speaking it or writing it. Um, And so it's, it's very important for us as we look at Scripture to interpret Scripture. Failing to do our homework in these areas... And there are more, there are more disciplines. Those are just a couple of, or a few examples. But failing to do our homework in these areas can lead us down a path of biblical error. Um, our passage today has caused some of that among the church. So we're going to look at the passage for today, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the situation there and how it has caused some disagreement on um, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's pray, or l- sorry, let's read. And then we'll pray. Um, If you are capable of standing, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? Starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, your word, that we have copies of it um, overflowing in our country, um, sometimes in our own particular families. We have so many copies of it, so many different uh, of the translations of it, so that we can see, um, get a good, well-rounded understanding of the words that are used in Scripture and what they mean. I pray that you would give us wisdom today as we look at this text uh, so that we can understand a text that has caused some misunderstanding among your people. Um, Not that we have all the answers and we have everything right here in our church, but uh, we want to be people who are faithful with your word. Um, So help us to handle it faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so um, the first thing we're going to look at, you have in your notes, is uh, that we're going to look at the components of conversion because what, we, what we're going to be dealing with today is that uh, this situation is a little bit different than what we've seen so far in Acts, which is why it causes some confusion among the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we're going to look at the components of conversion, and the first thing we're going to look at is that which is normal, in Acts. We're going to look at the norm in the book of Acts. And so what we see in the book of Acts is that every conversion has four components. So we're going to look at the four components of every Christian conversion in the book of Acts. The first one is repentance. There's repentance on the part of the people or a person. The second one is faith in Christ. So they, they recognize their sin and they repent of their sin and they place their faith in Christ um, and his sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. There's water baptism. And then the fourth component is there's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All right, now the order of these can vary. As we've studied Acts, we've seen how this, these four components are there, but the order sometimes is different. So the order can vary, but each component is present in each conversion that you see um, throughout Acts, which is the main narrative in terms of the work of the church after Christ's re- uh, redemptive work. Um, Acts is the main narrative of the work of the church that we see in the New Testament. The order is can vary, order can vary, but the components are there. The only component out of all of these that you and I have any control over as, as a person um, 
responding to God is baptism. The other components are all the act of God working in your life. God works on the heart to bring about repentance. According to Ephesians 2.8, faith, number two, is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. As I said, baptism is a, is a command that we follow. And then the last component, God gives the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. So these four components really are made up of what God is doing in the life of someone that he's convicted of their sin, uh, convicted of their need for a Savior to save them from that sin and to bring about repentance and uh, faith in Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, even though the order varies in the New Testament, what we found is that some groups overemphasize different components of the order. Um, so the kind of church that I grew up in, uh, they hold, it's kind of an unspoken, they wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily say this, or I don't even know if they necessarily realize this, but they, there's kind of this unspoken understanding that true conversion takes place at the time of baptism. And so baptism is, uh, is a very heavy emphasis that they put on that component, or um, that component is what they put most of their emphasis on when it comes to somebody giving their life to Christ. Other churches, uh, like some Pentecostal groups, believe that all believers receive the Holy Spirit at conversion, but then there's a second baptism that's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it looks a lot like what we read in our text today in Ephesus, where there's evidence of the Holy Spirit indwelling them with the speaking of tongues and, and prophesying. Um, and so the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for those churches is the, is the main emphasis that they put on in their teachings. Now, to emphasize one of those more than the others is to be deceived about salvation as a whole. Each one of those is equally important in the life of the believer. Therefore, you see it accompany every conversion in Acts. So that's the norm in terms of what we see throughout the book of Acts. We have a unique situation in our text today. And so even though throughout the rest of the book there's this norm and it varies, there's still an aspect of consistency because they're all present but our situation doesn't really fit any of those variations in what we see to be a normal conversion in the first century here. Um, so you'll remember Acts chapter 8 when Philip took the gospel to Samaria and there were Samaritans who gave their life to Christ. They were, um, they believed. So they, they uh, repented, they put their faith in Christ they were baptized in the name of Jesus, number three, but there was a delay in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the delay was, we, we discussed how that particular situation, God, because they were enemies, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and Samaritans were enemies from their cultural history. Um, we talked about how God sent Peter and John so that they could, so that they 
had to welcome them in the faith by the laying on of hands, and they witnessed the indwelling, the filling of the Samaritans with the Holy Spirit so that God had given evidence of this to his two of his leaders, and they took the news back to Jerusalem. And so there was a specific situation there that God delayed the giving of the Holy Spirit until there was a laying on of hands. But that's not what we have here. There is a laying on of hands by Paul in our text to receive the Holy Spirit, but there was not baptism in the name of Jesus. Um, There was baptism in to John's message, John's baptism, but not into the name of Jesus. Um, There was not faith in Christ because... There were, they were still working under the understanding of what John had proclaimed when John came. So a different situation than that. If you remember in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius' household, this, these were Gentiles, they believed and they received the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. So that looks a lot like what we see in our situation in Acts. However, that was prior to water baptism. It was after the Holy Spirit descended upon Cornelius' household that Peter said, let's baptize these people. Um, And they were baptized not into John's baptism, but into the um, baptism. They were baptized into the name of Christ. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 18, we have a similar situation. In chapter 2, it's the 12 apostles. In chapter 18, it's Apollos. But we have here a situation where they were baptized into John's baptism. Um, they, w- they were not, they, when they put their faith in Christ, they were not rebaptized. There was no call or need for rebaptism. Um, and the Holy Spirit came upon them and was in, had indwelled them and was working through them in powerful ways, both the 12 apostles and Apollos in 18, um, to indicate that they had a salvation that was found in Christ. Now, our situation here with the, with the people in Ephesus, they were baptized into John's baptism, but there was no evidence of the Holy Spirit that had come upon them. And again, there was no knowledge of Christ. And so we have a a unique situation here in our text. And because this situation is unique, and because of the wording of Paul's question when he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That phrase, looking at a unique situation in the text, and looking at that, that question, did you receive the Holy Spirit with this phrase, when you believed? That passage has been used by some groups who claim that we undergo this second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism at conversion. There's, so they're saying here are, here's a group of Christians who have been converted and they have, you know, they have, been baptized by John's baptism, so they believe that there is there is um, a f- receiving of the Holy Spirit because all believers re- receive the Holy Spirit. But then there is a spirit baptism at a later time that's accompanied by speaking of tongues as a sign of the Spirit's indwelling, um, kind of like a second filling. So when you when you are when you are converted and you believe in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit as all believers do, but then there is this 
experience that you have at a later time when you get in tune with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit rushes upon you in a more powerful and a different way. All right. So that brings up some questions then. So let's look at our, as you move to your second point in your notes, I want to look at the disciples in Ephesus. I'm going to look at the disciples because the question has to be asked then when Paul said, Luke, first of all, in verse 1, Luke calls them disciples and Luke tends to use that word as to refer to people who are believers. So in verse 1, it tells us that Paul found some disciples. And so the question then has to be asked, disciples of whom? Disciples of Jesus or disciples of John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist had followers as well. So we know that they were, at least at one point, disciples of John the Baptist because they were baptized into John's baptism. John's baptism, however, was a baptism of anticipation. It was a baptism that pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah, the completion of his redemptive work, and the giving of the Holy Spirit to all believers. But the problem is, all three of those things, the anticipating of the coming of the Messiah the completion of his work of redemption and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that has already happened. All three of those things have taken place. So, a baptism of of anticipation is no longer needed or even really appropriate because we've now moved into, from, from the Old Covenant and gospel times, which were still under the Old Covenant, into the completed work of Christ and now the indwelling of the Spirit in into the New Covenant. And so, so, we know that they were at least, ba- um, sorry, at least disciples of John the Baptist, but now we need to figure out, were they disciples of Jesus now that Jesus has come? And some believe that they were. Uh, a very respected commentator that I love to read, I respect his um, work on interpretation, and he's considered by people of all denominations as one of the greatest New Testament scholars um, Ever. His name is F.F. F. Bruce. Uh, he believes that these men were, were disciples of Jesus because they had clearly heard and understood John's message. And John's message was one that spoke of the coming of the Messiah. And they would have known about the Holy Spirit, Bruce says, because of Matthew 3.11, where John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water but one is coming who will baptize you with fire and the Spirit. And so F.F. F. Bruce says that what he believes is that they, that they were Christians, they, they were followers of Christ, but they might not have known that the prophecy of the Messiah had come and that the completion of redemptive work and the indwelling of the Spirit had come to completion yet. So that's what some people believe in terms of this group of people. I, I'm not convinced that they are Christians yet. I'm convinced that they're not Christians yet. Even though I, I love F.F. F. Bruce and I trust his work, there are many that fall into this camp that don't believe that they are yet. And here's why. 
they first of all, number one, they had no knowledge of Jesus. If the gospel had been preached to them, then they would have had to hear a message about Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection. And if the gospel had been preached, they would have also heard of what Christ promised more than once. John 17 is one example of where he promised that there would be a helper that God was going to send once he ascended back to heaven. So if they had no knowledge of Jesus, they can't be Christians because the definition of a Christian is somebody who follows Christ. If Jesus had been proclaimed as this long-awaited Messiah, then they would have heard about him. They would have heard about whoever was proclaiming it would have instructed them on being baptized into his name. Um, And they would have mentioned the Holy Spirit. Since Jesus is the replacement of the Old Covenant, um, if you don't know him, then you can't really be a follower of him. So that's number one, one reason why I don't think that they were Christians. Number two is that they were not filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, we talked about the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. until They didn't receive it until Peter and John laid their hands on them. We discussed that because of the animosity, that that was a kind of a special situation where God was requiring something different than just the filling like we saw at Pentecost. Um, that wasn't... That wasn't needed here. We didn't have an animosity that required um, a specific meeting to, to, for God to demonstrate that he was filling these people with his spirit and welcome, welcoming them into the family of God. There was no need for something like that. So the fact that they were not yet filled with the Holy Spirit and didn't even know about the Holy Spirit indicates that they were not Christians, I think. Now, let me give you a couple of passages just to support this. Romans 8, 9. I think I have it on here. Romans 8, 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so that's pretty clear. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. John 7, 38, 39. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said... Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, that's, those are Jesus' words, okay? John says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So, in John's Gospel, Jesus, he records Jesus saying, If you believe in me, then the promise of Scripture is that out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says, so that the reader understands, He's talking about the Holy Spirit. If you believe in him, the Holy Spirit will indwell you and will flow out of your heart like a river of living water. And so I personally don't think that they were Christians yet. So we looked at the components of conversion and we looked at the specific information that we see in the text about the disciples in Ephesus. Now I want to look at, um, and we've talked about how some churches have used this to build their theology around this. So I want to look at the danger of building a theology around a unique situation or one unique situation in scripture. 
the danger of building a theology around one unique situation. Um, so th these churches that do this, they build their main doctrinal stance that differentiates them from other churches on this text. And again, I said that they, there's this belief that there's a second baptism. There's the water baptism when you believe, and then there's a spirit baptism at a later time. Now, we haven't, according to that, it's like you haven't experienced God's fullness until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, rushes upon you in this second experience you have, and, demonst and that's demonstrated by um, the gift of tongues at the moment. Um, by the way, this is a, this is a, a doctrinal stance or a theological um, concept that was developed in the early 20th century and then really took on speed and gained momentum in the 1960s. Um, and actually, one of, one of their main writers, that, that commentators that writes on all their stuff, and you see his name all over the place, actually said that uh, there's, his writing indicates that this was something that was a gap between the early church and, and then in the early 1900s, all of a sudden this group discovered how to get in tune with the Holy Spirit. And so according to his writings, it sounds like if you were in this period between the early 1900s and the early church, you were just kind of out of luck. You didn't really get to have the indwelling, the Holy Spirit in its fullness. Now, there's a problem with that. The problem with this interpretation, I think, is at least twofold. I'm going to mention two. There might be more, but it's at least twofold. And the first thing is this. I think it's clear that they weren't Christians yet. So you can't, you can't interpret this scripture. If, if I'm right, if they aren't Christians yet, then you can't interpret the scripture as how God works among the life of his church made up of believers. They didn't know who Jesus is, and they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. When Paul arrived, they were, from what I can see in the text, they were still followers of John the Baptist. So to interpret this as a group of people who had already been converted and now were receiving baptism in the Spirit a second baptism of, of the Spirit, I think is a pretty poor translation. The text, I think, is clear that after Paul explained that John was talking about Jesus and that Jesus had already come and that that was the gospel that he was there to proclaim, after he explained that and that explained that Jesus is the center of the gospel message, then they were converted to following Jesus. And at that point, they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. At that same time, they believed, they, they repented, they believed and put their faith in Christ, and Paul baptizes them, and then he lays his hands on them, and so it's all in the same time, the same event. It didn't come at a later time. The second reason, I, the second problem I see with that interpretation is that God does not give the Spirit in degrees. God doesn't give us the Spirit a little here and say, after you mature some, I'll give you more of the Spirit. When God pours out his Spirit on a believer 
and fills him with the Spirit's indwelling, he does it for two reasons. He does it for his own glory, and he does it um, so that we would know him. We talked a few weeks, three or four weeks ago, about John 17 and how eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus whom he sent. And so the most important thing is for us to know him. God gives us his spirit so that he can declare his glory through that and that we can know him personally. He does not say that he will give us some now and more next week. He doesn't pour his presence into us in portions. He fills us completely with all of who he is. And so all of my life is governed by all of him as he indwells me. John three thirty four says this, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And so God doesn't give his Spirit in degrees. Something that I've learned as we've studied Acts is that the book of Acts is very transitional. Acts is very transitional. You see a lot of people who are in transition from the old covenant into the new covenant. You see that they are they don't go instantly from this from believing this into a full understanding necessarily of the new covenant. Um, and so some examples of that are um, uh, we in, in, in 18, last, the last chapter that we looked at, Paul had kept a vow and he cut his hair because he was finished with his vow. Um, it doesn't say that it was a Nazarite vow, but that was a vow in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, where you didn't cut your hair um, while you were fulfilling that vow. If it wasn't a Nazarite vow and it was just something else, it, was very, it looked very much like Old Covenant stuff. Paul was by all means sold out and fully surrendered to Christ. Um, the vows that they took in the Old Testament were, they were things that God commanded, but, but Paul has already said the Old Covenant is obsolete, we don't need it. But they were also cultural things. And so Paul, for some reason, felt like he needed to take this vow. Um, still kind of, I mean, he doesn't completely lose his, his history and his heritage just because he's now become a Christian. And so he's still taking part in some of those things um, that aren't with the understanding that those things don't assure your salvation or affect your salvation. But he felt like the need to take a vow. Um, Apollos is somebody who was filled with the Holy Spirit and preaching the gospel. He knew he knew Jesus, um, but he didn't know Jesus to the point that he needed to know until Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside and taught him the way of Jesus more accurately. And so we have a guy here who has transitioned into the New Covenant, but there's still more learning for a full understanding of the New Covenant until Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside. 
that's kind of what we see a lot in Acts. We see people who are moving from one covenant into the next or people who weren't a part of that covenant at all moving from a life of paganism into this new covenant with Christ. And just like you and I are learning every day, and we will until the day we die, they were still learning and transitioning some very much throughout the book of Acts. So Acts is very transitional. Therefore, our theology cannot be based upon one scripture, one specific unique situation that we see in the book of Acts where so much of that transition is taking place. You've got you to take what we see in Acts, but you've got to also pull from the other places of scripture where you can develop a more full understanding of the doctrine of the Spirit, which is a Real, real fancy term if you ever hear people call talk about pneumatology. That's the study of the Holy Spirit. You get more instruction on the Holy Spirit's work in your life in the Gospels, and you get it in the epistles, whether they're Paul's epistles or Peter or John. And so you can't take one unique situation and build your whole theology around that. Which is why I loved when we when we took a break from Acts during the COVID outbreak before we were meeting back inside and we studied the holy spirit i loved doing that study because we were able to say all right here's what we see here's what we we've already talked for a number of months about acts here's what we've seen in acts here's what we see jesus tell us about the holy spirit in the gospels here's what we see paul tell us about the work of the holy spirit in his epistles we took all of scripture and looked at what the holy spirit we even looked at old testament situations and so it's just a dangerous thing to take one unique situation and build most of what your church is about around that. So, Paul comes in, and I titled this, The Holy Spirit Gives Paul Discernment Because This. So I'm going to wrap up by giving you a re- real quick recap of what sp- the Spirit did through Paul. Paul comes in, here's this group that has been identified as, he hears that there are disciples. So he goes to them, and the Spirit gives him enough discernment to see something isn't quite right. They don't seem to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he just asks them two simple questions. And the first one is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And very quickly he learns they don't even know what he's talking about. And then he says, so what were you baptized into? And they said, into John's baptism. And so Paul realizes, I got to give the gospel message from the start with these people. Um, For us today, I want to pray together as a church that we would have that kind of discernment, that the Holy Spirit would fill us with that kind of wisdom. And I want to pray that we would never fall into the trap of taking one thing in Scripture and making that our sole basis for what we believe because it it can spread like wildfire as you might say i see this one thing this is what i believe about this one particular area of theology but then that has a ripple effect and it affects every other area of theology so my encouragement to you for this from this text is that we would pray for discernment and that we would pray for the Holy Spirit to guard us against taking something like that without its context, without understanding the definitions in Scripture, without 
the grammar, all of those things that add to it, and building a whole theology around it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that um, that we have not just not just the book of Acts or not just a chapter. There are some places around the world where your church is in existence and they only have a portion of one book from your word that they can use. I thank you that we have the entire revelation of your word at our fingertips. Um, however, that requires a greater responsibility on our part to study it and to know it in its context, its biblical context, to know it in its cultural context, to, to know how to interpret it for our particular culture and context today. So I just pray that your Holy Spirit would give us discernment, and I pray that your Spirit would guard us so that we don't fall into that trap. It's so easy to do, but let us not fall into that. And again, let it help us to handle your word with faithfulness. In Jesus' name.